Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. Luke 7, verses 1 to 17. We have here two incidents of healing, two miracles that occur. We'll read the first section, verses 1 to 10, and then move on to the next one. Luke 7, verse 1. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a certain centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they had come to Jesus, they earnestly entreated him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not fit for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For indeed, I am under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the multitude that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. This passage in Matthew 7, verses 1 to 10, is paralleled in, excuse me, Luke 7, 1 to 10, is paralleled in Matthew 8, 5 to 13. There are a couple of insights there that we'll consult later in Matthew. But here we notice that when he completed all his discourse, that is the discourse of the previous chapter, when he finished that, the, the Sermon on the Mount, he went to Capernaum. And what's the connection between what he just said and going to Capernaum? Capernaum was the city where he stationed himself for his public ministry. Peter's house was also there. He had stationed himself there and Peter's house was there. Capernaum was in Galilee. And according to Isaiah 9, the Messiah, Christ, would preach in Galilee and he would do uh, many marvelous things. He would be a light to the Gentiles in Galilee. And in relation to the previous chapter, in the last part of it, he presented this parable of the good tree and the bad tree and then also of the rock uh, or the house founded upon the rock or the house founded upon the sand and made a contrast between the two. In both cases, we see that there must be fruit on the basis of obedience to Christ's words, that we hear the gospel and then obey it and follow it and bear fruit accordingly. Well, who can be and who will be included in this reception of the gospel and obedience to the gospel? That's a natural question. Well, in Luke 7, he explains first Gentiles, and then he will explain a Jew. But he'll give us some details about this Gentile and Jew, which should not surprise us, because the Apostle Paul said in Acts 20, 21, that he testified to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is meant for both Jew and Gentile. That shouldn't be a, a surprise for us. And when Jesus came, he was coming to inaugurate that and to announce it. Not that he would go into Gentile areas or, or Gentile countries. The apostles would do that and further disciples would do that. Jesus did not do it that way. 
So the first example or one example here of Jesus helping a Gentile who has faith. And that's the key. It's not just any Gentile, but the Gentile with faith. Verse 2. And a certain centurion slave was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. This centurion slave, a centurion was a Roman commander of a, uh, of a hundred soldiers. He had a hundred soldiers under his charge, at least a hundred, and he has a slave. And in this case, the slave was a very faithful slave, very friendly and dutiful slave, and this is why most likely that he's highly regarded by him. The centurion doesn't want to lose not just the slave, but this human <coughs> being that was very good to him and kind to him in many ways. Likely very obedient and very uh, cordial and, and quick uh, uh, to be diligent and do whatever the centurion wanted. Well, he is sick and about to die. He has some kind of fatal sickness and he's near death. Verse 3, And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. Undoubtedly, from the previous miracles and the way that the news spread about Christ, he hears that Christ has his power and he hears of who Christ is. And he has faith because he knows who Jesus is and what powers he has. And he hears that Jesus is in his area. So he calls on some Jewish elders to ask Christ to come and save the life of his slave. At this point, there's one difference between this account and Matthew. In Matthew, it just says the centurion asked Jesus to come. It doesn't say by what means the centurion used to ask Jesus to come. It was the means of the Jewish elders. Luke specifies that he actually used these messengers, the Jewish elders, to come. He uses the Jewish elders because we can tell from this passage that he's a very humble man. He's a very humble man, and so he doesn't want to go and approach Jesus himself. He uses some Jewish elders who are friendly toward him. Usually there's animosity between Jews and Gentiles, both ways. It's a two-way street. Jews hate Gentiles, and Gentiles hate Jews. Usually there is that, but in this case, there was friendliness. There was kindness between the two. So he naturally uses the elders, because Jesus was a Jew. The elders, well, if elders come in a group, won't people listen? Won't people uh, have their ears perked up to, to find out why these elders are coming? And will they not give whatever message they have some attention? Of course they will. And that's what he does. He sends these Jewish elders to come and save the life of his slave. Verse 4. And when they had come to Jesus, they earnestly entreated him with this earnest petition. They earnestly, they diligently, they, they are basically begging Jesus to come. They know that they have a good man, a good Gentile man that's friendly towards them, so they want to help him. But notice the way in which the Jewish elders ask what they say. They do commend him. He is worthy for you to grant this to him. He is worthy. He has done good things. He's a worthy man. It's likely because it is the centurion who has faith. And Jesus says later that he has not found such great faith in Israel. It's likely that the Jewish elders don't really believe in Jesus. They're just trying to help a friend. 
and it's the centurion who believes, not the elders. So if they are unbelievers, they are more looking at it in terms of good works. They're looking at life and the issues of life more and salvation as good works rather than as, as a manifestation of a regenerate heart. They're looking at good works as a means of salvation. And then they say in verse 5, For he loves our nation, that is, he loves the Jewish people, and it was he who built us our synagogue. This is often what happens. Either there will be a group of wealthy men or one wealthy man who has the, enough means to build a synagogue, whether it's a house that's converted into a synagogue or whether it's a synagogue itself. They have those means. And so he had some endearment towards the Jewish people. Likely he was hearing the word. Likely he saw the way that they lived. Likely he saw that they helped one another. They, the Jews helped one another. Probably he was very curious about what was in their holy book and he was hearing it and asking them questions about it. Likely these kinds of things happened. And this is why he wanted that kind of religious faith to persevere, to continue. And so he builds them a synagogue. And on the surface and in regards to friendliness and civil matters, of course this is all good. It's good to be kind to another nation uh, that's not your own nation. And it's also kind and good to help them with their faith. And especially they had the book of books, that is the Bible. They had the Old Testament at that point. They had the Old Testament, the Word of God. So whatever supports the Word of God, the centurion had that understanding. He knew that that's where they come to worship. That's where they come to read. And they, they come to expound the Bible. So it must be good. It's worthy of uh, prolongation. So he does so. Verse 6. Jesus started on his way with them. He goes along with the elders. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. He's, he knows that Jesus is on his way. And he sends friends before Jesus gets there. Before Jesus reaches his house, these friends are sent with this message. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not fit for you to come under my roof. That's humility. That's like the tax collector in Luke 18, 9 to 14. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He doesn't look up into heaven. He beats his breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is the same attitude. Humility is a requirement for salvation. And it is characteristic of salvation. It is required at the moment of conversion and it is characteristic of those who have true faith. Humility. He says, I'm not worthy for you to come. He knows that Christ is Messiah. He knows that he's performing miracles. And likely, he has this attitude that Moses has. Right? When, when God what presented himself to Moses at the burning bush, Exodus 3 and 4, when Moses realized God was there, Moses turned his face away, right? He didn't want to look at God. Isaiah did the same. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Jacob was amazed that he did not die when he fought with God, wrestled with God in human form in, in Genesis 32. Many examples of this. So a righteous man knows he's unworthy and doesn't want God in his presence. That's even what happened in Luke 5, when Simon Peter 
saw the miracle that Jesus performed with the fish, he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's the right attitude. Sinful men should not be in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And then verse 7. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. See, I'm not worthy. I, I just want you to say the word, because I know you have that power. Just say the word, and it will happen. He knew that Jesus had heavenly and divine authority to do whatever he wanted to do. He knew that. Then he explains with his own example, the example of his everyday life. Verse 8, For indeed, I am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my slave, Do this, and he does it. I understand authority. I just have to say a word, and my soldiers or slaves do whatever I want. So, Lord, you know, and you are the Lord of heaven, and you have the power to do whatever. So just say the word, and everything will be just fine. You don't need to come in, into my presence. Don't trouble yourself. And I'm unworthy even to even uh, talk to you personally and to see your face. So just say it, and it'll happen. I trust your authority. I know you have that authority. Verse 9. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the multitude that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. He marveled. Not that he's surprised at it, but he marvels in terms of an anthropomorphic reaction to things. That is, a human, proper human response to it so that we might understand that that is the right response that we should have. And that is, when someone exercises great faith, we should also marvel and we should also be thankful that that is what's happening. And he says, to the, he says this to the multitude. Why to the multitude? Because the multitude needs to know what this single Gentile centurion did and has. The multitudes need to know that. Everybody needs to have it. Not just the centurion and not just people here or there. But everybody who hears the word, everybody should obey it. Everybody should believe it and follow it. And not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Now, that is a slam against the Jewish people. In Israel, among the Jews who have the word of God, why is there no great faith among them like this? He sees it in this man, but he doesn't see it in, in, in his own countrymen, the Jewish people. This is what John tells us in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. He came to His own, meaning His own people, the Jewish people, and those who were His own did not receive Him. There were a few who received Him, but John is talking in generalities. The whole nation didn't, and especially the rulers, the authorities, the political and religious authorities, they didn't believe. In mass, they didn't. And they didn't lead the rest of the nation to do the same. They didn't do that. But there are a few who do. John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but 
of God. And one more place that emphasizes this fact that the people did not believe is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And here we'll see about the rulers specifically. 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor the rulers of this age, who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The rulers of this age did not understand it. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Their wisdom passes away, but the wisdom of God endures forever. This is an illustration of it. The centurion is benefited because his slave is healed. In verse 10, Luke 7:10. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Before Jesus reached there, it doesn't say that he reached there at all. But he just said the word, whatever word he said, and they went back because he was near the house, and they went into the house and saw that there was immediate and instant healing. This was a miracle. Not, no, no shenanigans, no, no show. It was real. So, Jesus shows here that faith in whomever, and in this case, a Gentile, and in this case, a Roman centurion who is also duty-bound to make sure that the Roman Empire keeps their subjugation over the Jewish people. The Jews, as a nation, are slaves to the Roman Empire. And yet there was great faith found in this centurion. And that's what counts, that he had faith. It doesn't matter what the, your uh, pedigree is, doesn't matter what your ancestry is, doesn't matter whose blood you have, what name you have, it doesn't matter. They were descendants of Abraham physically. But this man is a descendant of Abraham spiritually, the centurion. And that is the point that Jesus makes in Matthew's account of it. In Matthew chapter 8, in Matthew chapter 8, we'll pick it up at verse 10, 8, 10. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says in verse 11 that many shall come from east and west. He's not talking about the Jewish people scattered throughout the world. He's talking about Gentiles scattered throughout the world. And the Gentiles will eat at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Normally, Jews, because of restrictions and cleanliness, dietary restrictions and cleanliness laws, they're not supposed to be eating with Gentiles. Remember, Peter in Acts 10. He's not supposed to. It's unlawful for them to eat with Gentiles. But in this case, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to be eating with Gentiles. Why? Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob believed in Christ the Messiah. They believed in the gospel. They looked forward to the death and resurrection of Christ. And the centurion and many others from east and west all around the world, if they believe 
in Christ, they will be at that heavenly banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the sons of the kingdom, they will be excluded and they will be cast out into, that, into outer darkness. In that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the house of feasting, that heavenly house of feasting, there will be lights and there will be joy. But outside, it's going to be dark, like the dark of night. There won't be any street lamps. Nothing will be there. And people out there will be weeping and gnashing their teeth. That's the difference. And what makes the difference? Faith. Faith in Christ. There is one major misunderstanding we have to clarify before we move on to the next miracle. And that is, sometimes people from passages like this one say that every person has an equal amount of grace endowed by God and every person has the ability to exercise faith based on that equal grace. It's known as general grace or prevenient grace, that every individual has that. And that's what's evident, they say, in this centurion. He had faith that he was exercising beforehand, before Jesus came on the scene. After all, he loved the nation of Israel, he built their synagogue, so he had faith, and then his faith just increased or became more specific in Jesus. That's usually the way the argument goes. And that's actually the way that they say was the case with Cornelius, who was also a centurion in Acts chapter 10. They say in the case of Cornelius, Cornelius um, had equal uh, access to faith and equal access to grace. He just needed to exercise that and then he would be just fine. But actually, this is not the case. This is not the case at all. True faith comes to only some people. And it comes not because the person chose to exercise that faith, but it comes because of God's predestination. You see, with the first line of thinking, they, they think that faith produces a rebirth. So faith produces a, a born-again experience in people, and then God decides to choose them. He predestines them for salvation. That's what they say. Faith, rebirth, predestination. That's the sequence. When actually the biblical sequence is predestination, rebirth, or a new heart, and then faith. Faith and repentance. It is actually predestination, rebirth, and faith. That is the biblical sequence. And we, we must understand that. And that sequence is not available or possible in every single person. It is restricted. There is an effectual grace. There is an effectual call. There is uh, a gifted faith. It is a gift of God, and that gift is not given to every person. Let's look at an example, or a few examples, to show what the biblical position is. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Here the Apostle Paul has been preaching in the synagogue. Some, some Jews believe, others reject. Some Gentiles believe, others reject. And in verse 48, notice what happens. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord 
And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. See there, the sequence is that they had been appointed to eternal life, then they believed. They have to be predestined or appointed to eternal life for the belief to occur. If belief is first and predestination is later, then this verse should read, as many as had believed were appointed to eternal life. But the verse doesn't read that way. It says it the opposite way. This is one example of it. Another example is John chapter 10. John chapter 10. John chapter 10 and verse 26. 10, 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. If faith is first, then he would have said, but you are not of my sheep because you do not believe. He didn't say it that way. He said it the opposite way, which proves that you have to be chosen as a sheep of God for you to believe. If you're not chosen, then you won't believe. It won't happen. At all. Then uh, a couple of verses on faith being a gift. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And we'll note that this is a restrictive, restricted or restrictive gift. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Philippians 1 6. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What is this good work? And who started the good work? It says there, right there, He who began a good work in you. The good work has to be God who starts it. The good work is not uh, originating from us, but from God. Philippians 1.29 For to you, who's the you in this passage? Philippians 1.1 The Philippian believers. For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. It is granted for, for the sake of Christ to believe and to suffer. Unbelievers do not suffer for the sake of Christ. Only believers suffer for the sake of Christ. So believers are given two gifts. They are given the gift of faith or belief and the gift of suffering for the sake of Christ. The two go together. Unbelievers, they don't have faith in Christ and unbelievers don't suffer for Christ. Here is a clear distinction that this happens because God grants it. God grants it because He predestines some to have the faith and the suffering that goes with it. That's the case. So, when the centurion had faith, it was not a faith that was common to every person, and it was not a faith that originated in himself. It was a gift of God to him, not to the Jewish elders and not to the many others, but to Him. All right, now our next miracle is in verse 11. Luke 7, 11. 7, 11. And it came about soon afterwards that He went to a city called Nain, and His disciples were going along with Him, accompanied by a large multitude. 
Now as he approached the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. Here in verse 11, he goes to a city called Nain. This city is also in Galilee. It's in the north, and it's not too far away from Nazareth, south of Nazareth and also close to the Sea of Galilee. So he goes from Capernaum to Nain. And there he will find more Jewish people. And he does find here uh, a, a widow, and it's likely a Jewish widow. If it were a Gentilic widow, I think the text would have told us that. But likely it's a Jewish widow. Um, and then it says, his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large multitude. He has his disciples, but also a large multitude who like the spectacle. That, that's what the multitudes like, right? They like the spectacle. They like the show because he, they know he's a miracle worker. Then verse 12, as he approached the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. As was the custom uh, among the Jews in many times, that is, they wouldn't bury in the city proper, but they would bury in the outskirts of the city or in the countryside in, in rural places. So they are leaving the city with a procession, a sizable crowd, all going in mourning and paying their respects. And notice that she's a widow and her only son dies. You can imagine the kind of situation she's in. Not having her son to take, to take care of her, provide income, and support and all those things that should be done in the family. Proper respect and uh, honor towards uh, parents. And in this case, the mother could not be done. Naturally, anybody with any kind of conscience and sensitivity will know that this woman needs help. And Jesus saw her. He felt compassion for her. He is showing the right response to a woman in need, a widow in need. And said to her, do not weep. Do not weep because he wants her to know that Christ has the ability and Christ perhaps is going to do something to help her. Do not weep. This is what Christ does. When Christ is going to reverse circumstances, he calls on us to stop our moaning and groaning and weeping and wailing and to look to him for everything we need. Verse 14, and he came up and touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt. He touched the coffin because he was wanting them to stop and um, not, because he, not because he's violating a law that you can't touch the coffin. Some people think that because the Old Testament had laws against the clean person touching an unclean person, that is a corpse, that Jesus was transgressing some law here. I don't think he was transgressing the law because even the Jews believed you could touch the coffin. You just couldn't touch the body 
without becoming unclean, and that was restricted for certain persons only so that everybody didn't become unclean. Certain persons could be unclean and then do whatever rituals they needed to become clean again after they touched the, uh, the, the corpse. So he just touches the coffin, not because he's breaking any law, but because he's calling on them to stop, to halt. And then he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And he arises. He sat up, began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. One, one more time, we have a miracle. It happened then and there in front of a sizable crowd, the large multitude and his disciples. The disciples, the large multitude, and the sizable crowd, they all see this. They all see this, and it happens just like that. Another proof of his miracle. These things were not done in a corner. They were not done secretly. There is no magic. There's, there's no, um, no kind of deception going on here. This is real. And many people saw it. And many people spoke of it. Because it says in verse 17, This report concerning him went out over all Judea, uh, all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. This again is an example. Even though he's in Galilee, sometimes the word Judea is used to refer to any place in the land of Canaan where the Jews live, not just in the province of Judea, which is in the south where Jerusalem is. So this is what happens. Everybody knows what happened. It was obvious, and they spread the word. Verse 16. <coughs> Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. What they say is true, and what they say is good. They fear gripped them, not fear of, of torment, not fear of death, not fear in any kind of way like that, but a reverential fear, a godly kind of fear grips them because they have seen a mighty demonstration of the power of God. They have seen it miraculously displayed right before their eyes. So they're awestruck. That's the kind of fear that they have. And because of that, they glorify God, which is a proper and good reaction. When we are awestruck by the glory of God, we should glorify Him. That is, praise Him and thank Him for who He is and what abilities He has. They do what is supposed to be done. They also acknowledge that there is a great prophet among them. This may be an allusion to Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brethren. Moses said that the one descendant of Judah, that he would be a prophet like Moses. And actually, the Apostle Peter quotes that passage in Acts 3, Acts chapter 3, verse 22. Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. There, 
the Apostle applies Deuteronomy 18 to Christ because the Jews did expect Messiah to be a great prophet, a prophet like Moses. And Peter just confirms, you know that Moses said this, and this is who Jesus is. The multitudes, they know who Jesus is. And God has visited his people. For God to visit his people, (coughs) for his people, when the Bible uses the term visitation or to visit his people, when it's his people, it is in mercy and grace and love. But when it is his enemies, it is in righteousness, holiness, and judgment. And in this case, they know a benefit has come about for them, so they praise God because he has visited. He has come near to them, not that God is distant, but in terms of God's um, proximity to bless, he was right there and he blessed, and they experienced this miracle. So that's why they say God has visited his people. He has shown mercy to them. After all, it could not have happened by the power of Satan. That's not what happened. It was God who did it through Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll give us the faith that is present here. We pray that you'll show us that you are desirous of having us manifest true faith and to know that we ought to put our hope and everything that we have in you through your Son. Grant that to us. In Jesus' name, amen.